You're listening to South Bend Beat, produced by Alpha Dog Podcast. This week on South Bend Beats, we have Dr. Pete McCown. Dr. Pete has a hand in pretty much everything that goes on in the South Bend, Elkhart area. He was a professor of mine at Bethel College, now Bethel University. My favorite professor, someone I considered a mentor, um, Dr. Pete's awesome. He has a great story um, from Little Caesars Pizza to academic circles to what he's doing now. Um, and we rounded, we finished up with some answer to the internet. And before we get to Dr. Pete, once again, this episode is brought to you by Martin Supermarkets. Try their groceries to go. The first couple times are free. Um, I've tried it. It was awesome, and I kept doing it. Pop into the side door deli, get breakfast, lunch, um, and find out everything you need on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere there's social media, at Martin's Markets. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, how are you today? I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty well. I, I, I was excited for this one. Um, I got up a little earlier than I usually do today to do some prep. And uh, Tina was like, what are you doing? I'm so early. <laughs> I was like, I have to do prep for a podcast. She's like, who are you having on? I was like, Dr. Pete today. And she's like, oh, okay. That makes that makes more sense. You're ready to rock. So I've been I've been excited for this one for a while. Um, I want to I want to start with let's go as far back as you'd like. Um, I'll get into some other stuff like my history with you at Bethel. Um, some stories I want to share, but even before you got to Bethel, um, if I'm not mistaken, you had a little Caesar's empire at one point. Well, I wouldn't, I would not characterize it as a little Caesar's <laughs> empire, but uh, a partner and I had 11 locations in mm -hmm. total. What area of the country was that? Uh, upstate New York. Okay. Primarily around, around the Rochester area. Um, what goes into, I guess, did you jump right in with 11 locations or did you start with one and grow from there? No, no. So, um, uh, my teenage years were in Southern California. So greater Los Angeles. Okay. And when I turned 15, uh, my dad told me that, uh, he would sell me his 1964 Carmen Ghia convertible when I was ready to hand him a check for $4,000. So at age 15, I went looking for a job uh, on my bicycle, and there was a strip mall that had a new pizza restaurant being constructed, and they had a sign in the window that said, now hiring. So I applied uh, to this pizza restaurant that happened to be a Little Caesars location, um, and this would have been Oh, 1983, 1984. Um, got a job washing dishes for this brand new location. Um, and that was at a time that Little Caesars, as a corporate entity based out of Detroit, had mm -hmm. decided to open the Southern California market. So it was a, it was a relatively uh, high growth company in the early mid 80s. 
And in the four or five years, six years that I worked for Little Caesars in Southern California, they opened about 200 locations in Southern California. Um, the location I was in was in a middle class, upper middle class suburb. And so they used that location as a training location for all of their new management trainees. And I stayed there all through high school and was you know, a virtually full-time high school employee. So I worked 30 or 40 hours a week there and got to know many of the people that ended up being managers in other locations and then became district supervisors and regional supervisors. And so in college, um, when I would go back, instead of putting me back into a location, they would use me and a few other college kids that had worked for them in high school to open new locations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So over the course of a summer, we might open two or three locations. We would go into a, into a site, knock all the equipment in, hire all the high school kids, train them, stay for a few weeks after the store had opened, and then we would relocate to the next new location. This all over the country or one? No, no, this was in Southern California. Just Southern just California. Because California, okay. they were opening 20 or 30 a year. Mm -hmm. um, so I was an accounting major at Greenville University outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, when I graduated from college, I interviewed a number of accounting firms for accounting jobs, but one of the other places I interviewed for employment was the corporate offices of Little Caesars Pizza in Detroit. And during the course of that interview, they learned how I had gotten connected and what my background was and the fact that I had had experience opening locations. And at the end of that day long interview, they in, the franchise vice president for franchise operations was in the exit interview. And they essentially said, we do have this staff accounting position that we would be prepared to offer you, but we would like you to meet this franchisee of ours from Cleveland, Ohio. So, a few weeks later, I drove from Illinois to Cleveland, met this franchisee, and he had purchased the rights to open a market in upstate New York, but he had never done anything about it. And it just so happens that my parents had relocated to Rochester, and my father was the chief academic officer of a college in Rochester by the name of Roberts Wesleyan College. So I worked for this franchisee that summer after college and ultimately we became I became a sweat equity partner with him and we started opening locations. He had he had opened one at the time that we became partners. So we opened 10 more in 3 years and then I came to realize that being a newly married husband <laughs> and balancing running a bunch of pizza restaurants, my wife was a school teacher, so her schedule was six in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon, and my mm -hmm. schedule was noon to midnight. Right. And it just, it was not tenable as a long-term career. I want to talk about the Rochester area a little bit more. Um, I, I love the Rochester area. I've lived there on two separate occasions. Um, I had family in Henrietta, and now they're in Pittsburgh. Uh, and when I came, when I transferred into Bethel as a junior, I remember I was sitting in one of your classes, and I was wearing a Red Wings hat. Yeah. And... <laughs> And you just kind of looked me up and down, because I assume you probably don't see many of those out here. Um, and you were like, you been to Rochester? I was like, yeah, I just moved from there. And then you shared that you were at Rochester. You, you yourself ended up at Roberts, right? I did. Yep. 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 Um, what years were that? 
Like, at what time frame was that when you were at Roberts? Uh, 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 so, graduated from college in 90, was with Little Caesars for three, three and a half years. So, I, I transitioned to Roberts Wesleyan as an employee in, in probably 93. Yeah, it would have been 93. Um, and then I was at Roberts Wesleyan until 2004 and kind of had a progressive career there. I, I hired on as a gift officer in their mm -hmm. development office and over the course of a few years became the vice president for development and then the vice president for advancement and served one president uh, for 10 of the 11 years that I was at Roberts, West, Roberts Wesleyan. Um, he still is a dear friend to this day, but when he retired, uh, they chose a new leader of the organization, and I, I think highly of him, but it was really a good time for me to kind of write a new chapter in mm -hmm. my own professional life. Uh, my wife is from Central Illinois, and so as we decided that we would leave Roberts, uh, her request was that I seek employment in the Midwest mm -hmm. so that we could live a bit closer to her extended family and her parents. And we had three little guys at the time. And so the idea that our boys would have a chance to get to know their grandparents better because we would be an afternoon's drive away mm -hmm. or so. Uh, and so I interviewed at Indiana Wesleyan and Anderson University and Butler University and Indiana State and um, ended up at Bethel. So we moved here to this area in 2004, and I took uh, a vice president for advancement role at Bethel College. Why Bethel? You know, my, my sense of call at that time was Christian higher ed and had earned a doctorate and a couple of master's degrees. And so, I, you know, my aspiration at the time was to grow in leadership within the ranks of the Christian colleges. Mm -hmm. And going into Bethel, did you know, so, so my first experience with you was being in your classes, um, your business classes. Did you know that you were going to be a professor as well? Did you know that would be part of the role? No, I, uh, that, that uh, was an unexpected <laughs> turn in the road. So if I had been honest with you in 2004, when I came to Bethel, my plan was to stay at Bethel about five years. Mm -hmm. I was 35 years old when I arrived at Bethel and there was some magical age of 40 that might legitimize me or anybody to be a viable candidate for a college presidency. I mean, that was my aspiration. Mm -hmm. And so I came to Bethel, served as their v vice president for advancement. Um, and in 2006, so two years after arriving at Bethel, I had an older sister who was a single, had never married, had served a 30-year career in the Air Force. And in the last tour of duty that she was assigned to, she decided that while she didn't have a husband, she would be interested in being a mother mm -hmm. um, post-retirement. And so she, she pursued adoption, adopted uh, her son, and then a couple years later had the opportunity to adopt a little girl. Uh, so the two kids were not biological siblings, but through adoption, she had two children. Um, and then when they were two and four, 
So in 2005, she was diagnosed with a fairly aggressive form of cancer that took her life about a year later. So her children became our children in 2006 when they were three and five. And we had three boys that were eight, seven, and four at the time. So the idea of being the vice president for advancement at Bethel, which included enrollment and athletics and physical plant and conference services and required, you know, if the athletic department reports to you, you got to be at a baseball game, you got to be at a soccer game, you got to be at a basketball game. If you're the vice president for advancement uh, and enrollment reports to you, you got to be at the new student move-in weekend and the new parent visit and the you know, the pretty much have to be everywhere at all times. Well, and, and lots of off hour type responsibilities and travel to call on and cultivate relationships with donors and board members and the like. And my poor wife is trying to parent five little kids that are under the age of eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I made the decision about a year, six months into adopting or bringing my sister's children into our family that, uh, there were really three tensions. My responsibility as a father, a husband, and the vice president for advancement, and the only one of them that could be, could be surrendered was my role as a senior officer of the institution. So I resigned. Uh, it just so happens that one of Bethel's business professors, a woman by the name of Leslie Greising, at about the same time had gone through a breast cancer diagnosis and had taken a medical leave. So I made the decision to move out of my role as the vice president for advancement. Leslie had gone on medical leave. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next, but Bethel needed somebody to fill a semester's set of courses in the business department, uh, teach them out. And so they invited me to move over to the classroom and teach Leslie's load uh, while she was on medical leave. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next, Mm -hmm. frankly. Um, Tragically, Leslie's health did not improve. Uh, The breast cancer was progressive, uh, ended up taking her life a few years later, but she never returned to the classroom. And so I just kind of hung around for another four Mm -hmm. years. And uh, some of the most enjoyable years of my professional career, I don't know that I was built long-term to be a permanent full-time professor, but those four years, four and a half years were uh, very rewarding, principally because of the relationship that I developed with my students, many of whom I keep in touch with, like you, to yeah. this day. And and you were, you were my favorite college professor and someone I consider a mentor from those years. What I remember about your classes was a lot of classes. I mean, it's academia, so there's some things that's not going to be long-term beneficial. You're coming in to learn, memorize something, get out in your class. I felt like, Hey, if I want to be in this space for the rest of my life, this is stuff that I actually need to know. I actually need to get up to speed with. And I, I'll be honest with you. I pretty much never studied at any point in my academic career. I enjoyed, I didn't even like view your stuff as studying. I enjoyed it and I'd go in and I'd get like, 98% 98% on a test, 100% on a test, which for me is absolutely unheard of. <laughs> unheard of. So you like me because I was easy. No, it was like I enjoy learning it. And it was for a test for you, I could sit down for two hours the night before and learn the material because I didn't hate it. Whereas a lot of classes, it was like, well, I have to study tonight. I didn't view it as I have to study. It was I'm enjoying learning this. So then when a test is put in front of me, I actually, who, 
who would have known studying actually helps when a test is put in front of me i actually knew the material and huh. i just loved it from beginning to end and we had to like right off the bat i think it was the first day in there i wore the red wings hat so I had that connection right off the bat a couple things i want to ask you if you remember we'll start with the marker on the wall <laughs> do, you, do you remember doing it? i think it was just kind of like a lackadaisical day in the classroom and you wanted to wake people up and all of a sudden everyone's looking like what is this dude doing right now <laughs> So I pulled that stunt more than once, <laughs> uh, I have to admit. I did learn um, I did learn that some of those kinds of uh, experiences captured my students' attention. Mm -hmm. um, the, I don't know if, if that occasion was the first time I pulled that stunt. It could have been. Um, but as I recall that story, I was, I was whiteboarding something and I ran out of room on the whiteboard and I kind of stopped for a minute and the wall below the whiteboard was also painted off white or white. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision that I would just keep whiteboarding but off the whiteboard and onto the wall. Um, what I didn't realize was that the dry erase marker for the whiteboard would not work as a dry erase marker on the wall. So after, after that class, I ended up having to go to the maintenance department and get a can of paint and a paintbrush and repaint over the top of that marker. But it was worth it because I think, I think my students were so aghast at the idea that I would do something <laughs> like that, that it, it caused folks to perk up and, and pay attention and maybe talk about the class and perhaps even remember the content as they went to lunch or they went off yeah. to chapel or they went to do their next thing. Uh, one of one of my favorite stories of that nature at Bethel was uh, I taught a, a management finance class. And about six weeks into that class, uh, the idea of stock risk diversification um, was presented in the textbook. And I was trying to find a creative way to introduce that unit or that topic to my class. And I made a decision um, to use Dice and Las Vegas as my introduction. So I pushed all the tables back in this class. And this was an 8 o'clock in the morning class, which is tough anyway for students and for professors, by the way. Um, pushed back all the tables, cleared the room, and on my whiteboard I wrote, Welcome to Vegas Day at Bethel College. <laughs> and as my students came walking in the door, I had a set of dice, probably 10 or 12 dice, and I created two scenarios on the board. One was if you roll a six, you get five extra credit points. If you roll a five, you get three extra credit points. If you roll... Uh, three or a four, you get one extra credit point. But if you roll a one or a two or a three, you actually have points deducted from the grade. Oh, board. I like it. Okay. Yeah. But on average, each roll of the dice would give you approximately two and a half extra credit points if statistically you got a six and a two and a four and a three. And, and then... I had another game on the board, which was if you roll a six, you get 50 extra credit points. And I multiplied the benefit, the same game, but with an, 
with a multiple of 10. Yeah, just bigger okay? numbers. Yeah. So every roll of the dice, statistically, you would average 25 extra credit points. And this was a class in which 100 points in the grade book represented a grade. Mm-hmm. An A to a B or a B to a C or a C to a B. And then I would hand the student, each individual student, a set of dice to roll two or three times. Invariably, the students chose game number one because it was ris- it was too risky yeah. to choose the heavier weighted consequence. And yet it was to their benefit if, the st- if statistically you ended up with a, an even number of sixes as you did twos. Um, well, you take 20... 19 and 20 year olds and you have them rolling dice and they're rolling for points and they're egging each other on and all the rest of it well the the point of the game was if you only had three rolls of the dice and it was those three rolls that could affect your grade in the grade book then you weren't prepared to take the chance that you might roll three ones and fail the class Mm -hmm. and have to retake it so everybody, except for one of my students, one semester, who was already failing the class. Yeah, I was going to say, right? your situation comes into play with that, too. Every other student, and this would have been hundreds of students over the four years I taught that class and took that approach, chose game number one. Okay. After everybody had rolled, then I would say, why did you choose game number one? And they would say, well, it was too risky to choose game number two. And I would talk them through, well... Listen, on average, you're going to get 25 extra credit points. You could improve your grade by a half a letter grade if you had chosen game number two. Yeah, but Dr. Pete, it was too, you know, I couldn't take the chance that I would lose, right? I could get a D and I'm holding a a solid C right now and I got to pass this class for my major. So then I would go round two and I would say, okay, well, there are 20 of you. What if I allow all of your roles to count as an average, (laughs) would you play game number two? And then they would agree as a class. Every single one of my classes agreed that they would take game number two as a chance because there would be a hundred rolls, not six. That's the same concept as investing in the stock market. If you buy an individual stock, Chipotle, Mm -hmm. there's some risk that Chipotle would have something bad happen and could lose a great deal of value. But if you bought Chipotle stock and Chick-fil-A stock and McDonald's stock, you know that the restaurant industry as a whole is fairly healthy, mm-hmm. short of something like COVID. And so whether one particular restaurant does better than the other almost becomes irrelevant as an investor because you're making an investment in a set of 20 or 30 restaurants that are all competing in the same space. And what you know is that the consumer is going to spend X amount of the GDP on fast food. And so you can diversify the individual risk of a stock in the same way that you could diversify the individual risk of a single singular roll of dice. Well, so I, I tell this story a little too long, probably for your interest, but one given semester, I am I am delivering that lesson to my class. The tables are all pushed back. I've got welcome to Vegas Day at Bethel College. My students are all hooting and hollering, throwing dice against the wall. <laughs> and the dean of the school of business c- comes walking down the hall and steps into my classroom to see what all this hooting and hollering is about. 
Well, unexpected. As you, as you know, yeah. yes, unexpected. And as you know, something like throwing dice against a wall <laughs> at Bethel College really doesn't go over that well. So I, I had to make a visit to the dean's office to be... Did that lesson get retired? Uh, no. Okay. It good. did not get retired. Because it is genius. Well, I, mean, I don't know that it's genius. It's but very I, good. But I can, I, I can almost guarantee you this. I hope. Uh, I would have a high degree of confidence that if you were to reach out to my students that took management finance during that period of time and ask them about stock diversification and risk variability, each of them would be able to tell you yeah. something specific about why and how, and they would relate themselves back to that Vegas day at Bethel College. 100%. And I, I out of curiosity, the one student that was failing enrolled, how did, how did it work out for them? Uh, I don't think, I, I think he rolled a couple of threes and a four and a five, and he ended up a little better off. Okay. Might have still but failed as I, class, re- so. as I recall, I had him as a student in the, in the same <laughs> class okay. the following semester so, as well. The roll didn't go well enough, but it went all right. Um, and another thing I wanted to ask you about, like outside of like taking me aside and running me through numbers, strategy, you know, history, every, everything that I was able to use later on. Um, we also had a couple meetings on something as simple as wardrobe. Do you remember this? We did. And it was, I mean, it was so mind-blowing because, I, I mean, I told you I was like, well, I'm a broke college student, but I want to make a good impression when I go on these job interviews. Like, what should I do? And you almost had like a Rain Man-like math equation <laughs> for this is what the ward, like this piece can go with this piece. And then this piece is very versatile because you can wear it with this, this, and this. Yes. And I remember calling my mom after that and she was like, that. That's wonderful. Go to TJ Maxx and like let's get it taken care of. And I went to TJ Maxx and got the stuff. And I had buying what five six pieces. I had fifteen different you know different outfits I could wear. So do you remember doing that for students too, like outside of the classroom? Oh yeah. So so yes, I do have my own formed opinion about about. Do you stick to a very specific wardrobe? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty much. Uh, that and that that was a learned mistake. So remember, I, I I moved into like adulthood professionalism in the early '90s. Took my first job where I had to wear a you know a suit, if you will, after having done the restaurant thing where you don't wear suits. Right. Um, and the first suit I bought that was super stylish was an olive green double-breasted suit and a salmon-colored tie. And in that day, I'm telling you, in that day, that was, like, cool, all right? The problem was I had that one suit. And Not that when, versatile. And when you wear it, people notice. Yeah, yeah. So when you have to wear it three days a week, people notice that you've worn the you same suit the three green days suit a week. You become the olive green suit guy, yeah. I have a charcoal-colored... Very lightly pinstriped suit that if I wore it four days a week, you'd never really take yep. note of it. But, you know, if you buy a navy blue blazer and a black blazer, just two plain blazers, I'm a big fan of cashmere because it stands up to everything. Mm-hmm. You can use it as a pillow, pillow on an airplane, too, and you shake it out and you don't have wrinkles. Um you can buy a pair of tan color slacks, a pair of gr- light gray slacks, a pair of dark gray slacks. You can, right? And you can 
where that same sport coat with three different pairs of slacks and a different shirt, a white shirt one day and a checkered colored shirt the next day, and you can get away with wearing that blue blazer two or three days a week if you're a, a person starting out with a wardrobe. Well, I taught a business communications class as well as the finance class and made a decision that that the way, the, the impression, the, 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 the way that young people dress uh, would be, they would be well served to have somebody give them some of that kind of instruction. And so I included that in the curriculum of that class. And often I would take somebody shopping, particularly young men who would ask me for my help with this. And my first favorite place to start is Burlington Coat Factory. Mm-hmm. And then you end up at TJ Maxx and you can end up at Marshall's. And for 500 bucks, I could help some young man really have a quality entry-level professional wardrobe for themselves. Um, well, I'll go a little further with that. So in that class... Please do. <laughs> uh, there was a particular class in which I had like four or five baseball players sitting in the very back of the class. Mm-hmm. As I recall, it was uh, Dan Halley and Lance Schrock and a couple other guys on the baseball team. Um, it was clear to me, given the fact that they were sitting in the very back corner of the room that I was going to have to work to get their attention. All of them have ended up doing very well as they've moved into adulthood. Um, But at the time, they were the stereotypical student athlete that didn't want to put in as as little effort as possible to get to game day because they were there as a baseball player and they had to be a student to be a baseball player. Yep. And I was introducing this wardrobe thing, and I, I just, I, 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 I didn't have them. I didn't have them emotionally. Well, remember, my kids were like nine, eight, seven. So I had a T-baller at the time. And on a particular day, I brought in, I think it was Noah's, t-ball uniform and maybe one of jake's uniforms too and and you know his baseball pants were elastic Mm -hmm. in the waist that was another thing you told me too adjustable waistband (laughs) there you go (laughs) that probably has served both of us well (laughs) but but you know he had he had you know pull-up socks that had like the stirrup painted on the sock and his baseball hat right Mm-hmm. was one of the adjustable snap baseball hats and his the uniform itself was a t-shirt and i walked in with that outfit and i said you guys are college baseball players do you hold tryouts and they're like well not really but you know like when we were in high school we came to try out for the coach and i said if you had come as a high school senior to try out with a group of other prospects to come to Bethel College and somebody else came to that tryout and they were wearing an adult-sized version of this uniform, what would be your impression of them? And they started chuckling. They're like, like that guy would be laughed out of yeah. the tryouts. I said, well, the same is true in the, in the game of business. 
So if you come walking into a sales call and you're not wearing a pair of socks with your dress, yeah. with your suit, or you've got suspenders that are clipped on to your waistband or your shirt's not, I, you look like in the field of business, in the game of business, like I've just described in baseball. I had those guys for the rest of the semester because it translated for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I taught a management class and did the same thing, I think, with almost that same group of guys in which I said, okay, tell me who Patrick Lencioni is. I have no idea. Tell me who Tom Peters is, right? Tell me who Jim Collins is. They have no idea, right? I said, you guys are baseball players, right? What if, what if somebody claimed to be a baseball, applied for a job as a baseball coach, a college baseball coach, and they didn't know who Babe Ruth is, and they didn't know who Sandy Koufax was, and they didn't know who Joe Torre was? Well, would, they, would you believe that they actually know baseball? Well, no, because everybody who knows who Babe Ruth is and Willie Mays and Joe Torre and, you know, Don Mattingly. I said the same is true in business. If you enter the field of business and you don't know who Malcolm Baldridge is, you don't know who Edwards Demings is, you don't know who Jim Collins is, you will be viewed in the same light as if you were applying for a baseball job and you didn't know the names of baseball, famous baseball people. So we've got one semester for you to learn the stories and the names and the personalities in the field of study and the, and the thought leaders in this field as well. And when I did that for the, these guys, all of a sudden it became relevant for them rather than just, I got to get through this management class and I want to learn as little as I possibly mm -hmm. can. And that, and that's something that I, I don't know how rare it is, but it's so important to where a lot of teachers, professors, but like, this is this curriculum. I'm going to teach it. This is how I know how to teach it rather than, where do I find my level with my audience and where do I get eye to eye with the audience to where they will understand? So use management as, as an example. I think uh, management, organizational leadership is a really fascinating topic mm -hmm. uh, that a textbook can make dull. And so I didn't use a textbook in that class. I said there are 12 or 15 really famous thought leaders, Zig Ziglar and Dale Carnegie. I mean, I can name them all. Let's just take a week to introduce each of these very famous people to my students. And we don't have to have a textbook that I can teach the content of salesmanship using Zig Ziglar and Dale Carnegie as examples or stories of salesmanship. And one more thing that I, I wanted to mention going off your day's teaching and such that I know you won't bring up because you won't want to toot your own horn, but that meant a lot to me was... Um, like one day, I think we finished class and it was like lunchtime. And you're like, what are you doing for lunch? And you're like, let's go to Papa Vino's. And I went to Papa Vino's and I'm looking at the menu and I'm like, I mean, this is very nice of him. Let me just like find the simplest <laughs> thing on here. And you were like, you're getting the sizzling fajitas. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I don't know. Man. You're like, no, you're getting the sizzling fajitas. Mm -hmm. And then went that home and then it was leftovers for that night. So little things like that, that. I mean, it still don't talk to you enough. It's very, I appreciate it more than you'll ever know. Um, mm. Your your days at Bethel were fantastic. Um, I wish every kid could have that experience. And thank you for that. And on that note, I want to move in and do the second part of this with your current position, which was post-Bethel. Um, so I'm not sure what you did uh, in between Bethel. I moved to New York, came back, but I know in 2011, um, so it seems like time-wise, that might have been jumping pretty close to right into it. Yeah. President so of the I, Community Foundation of yeah. Elkhart County. 
So I I left the classroom in 2011. Okay. To take the presidency of the community foundation. Okay. And what went into that decision? Oh, I tell you, God. Um, my kids had gotten to a point where they were all school age, and so life in our home was a little more manageable. Uh, because of my first assignment at Bethel, advancing the institution's brand and making new friends, uh, fundraising, I had gotten to know some folks over in Elkhart County that I liked and respected and were people of influence in Elkhart County. Um, got a phone call from one of them who was the vice chair of the board of the Community Foundation of Elkhart County. Uh, he had been asked to conduct a search for a new president and his father-in-law, Craig Fulmer, suggested that he call me. Craig and I had worked on a, well, Craig and I started the 40 under 40, Michigan mm -hmm. 40 under 40 program. Uh, and so Craig and I had worked together on that project. Uh, his son-in-law, Brian Smith, was the fellow who was the chair of the uh, the search for Ethic Foundation, and he called and asked me if I would be willing to have a cup of coffee. And after a series of conversations and interviews and, and prayer and thought and consideration, I took the job. And one thing that I know has been big under your leadership there, and I think for a lot of listeners, this is something that they might struggle with, whether it's grants, fundraising, you've been able to do a tremendous job of bringing capital from one one place or another into the region and to better the region what like what goes into that from a personal standpoint i mean not at your level but maybe a listener that has one or two things a year that they want to do fundraising for they want to just raise funds do you have any quick pieces of advice from someone who seems to do it so well at the macro level oh, i don't know um you know, i've spent most of my career in the area of fund development, if you will. Uh, first, as a gift officer at Roberts Wesleyan, uh, a decade there, a decade or so at Bethel. Um, those two were very specifically, I was employed by the organization to find people that had a common value system and invite them to make an investment in the cause. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, a, I'm an extreme extrovert, so that's that part's easy. I mean, I've never met someone that isn't just a friend I haven't yet met. Uh, so there are no such thing as strangers for, mm. for me. Um, but early on, you know, early on in my career, I came to realize that it wasn't the just right way for me to ask somebody to make a gift to the cause. It was about building a relationship with them and introducing them to the cause and if they were interested in golf, I connected them to the golf coach and the golf team, and we went and played golf. If they were interested in theater, I made sure that we invited them to a theater performance. If they cared about healthcare, we got connect, got them connected to our nursing department or the basketball team, or right. Um, and somewhere along the line, you have to have the courage to say, "Hey, to do this better, we could use resources are important, yeah. and you seem to have." resources in some degree that you would be capable of sharing those resources. And here's what we could do with those resources if you were to be willing to invest them in the work that we're about. Um, I thought that would be the nature of my work when I moved over to the Community Foundation. What I have now found, um, it, what I have now found is that 
my role at the foundation is to help people that have done well financially find their cause and their passion and encourage them and facilitate their thinking around around where sh- where should I make that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, for some folks, it's the Humane Society. For other folks, it's the Women's Care Center. Um, my role is to build relationships with folks that have uh, financial wherewithal, uh, some in like unbelievable levels, others more modest, but uh, and bring them into relationship, help the, I, I'm basically pa- pastoring philanthropy uh, in my work today. Now, as it relates to my involvement with the South Bend Elkhart Regional Partnership and the Regional Development Authority and our regional efforts, there is some intentionality about pursuing grant opportunities in mm-hmm. a more specific way. So my involvement with the, with the and I'll just call it the partnership from this point forward, but the South Bend Elkhart Regional Partnership, uh, my involvement there began uh, as a result of Regina Emberton's invitation to a whole group of community leaders in about 2013, 2014, to learn about this regional cities legislation that was making its way through the state house and the governor's office. At the time, it was draft legislation. Um, But there was this opportunity for regions across the state, if this legislation passed, which of course it did, uh, to, to compete for two $42 million grants uh, for quality of place capital investments. Mm-hmm. Um, a group of us, after that meeting to learn about this legislation, decided that it was worth pursuing. Uh, we organized ourselves uh, as a steering committee. So John Affleck Graves and Ami Shaw and Larry Garatoni and Mo. Oh, Chris Murphy and others uh, agreed that this was something we were going to compete for. Uh, all of some of us, most of us, anteed in some modest degree of resources to hire a consulting firm that had some line of sight on what the IEDC was hoping to accomplish through this grant program. Uh, they did the work of leading us facilitating a plan a regional planning process and um, environmental assessment you know what were our strengths and weaknesses and um, we developed the application applied uh, we were delighted to be awarded one of now three 42 million dollar awards and that really gave us gave us the reward and foundation to begin behaving like a region in a way that i hadn't seen in the 17 years that i ha- have lived here um, Elkhart is its own place, has its own network and infrastructure, South Bend, St. Joseph County, Mishawaka. Then we invited Marshall County to join us. Different different histories, different personalities, but what we came to realize is that, that, that we would have stronger influence both politically and, and, and influentially if we chose to work together as a region because there was the power of 500,000 people as opposed to 210 and 240 and 50. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so we could speak from with one voice to the IEDC, we could speak with one voice to the governor's office, we could speak with one voice to national organizations. Uh, the Lilly Endowment made a $42.5 million award to us. Um, and I, I can't interpret Lilly too, too much, um, but I, I, I would thoughtfully say I think part of the reason that they made the award to us is that they saw evidence that we were behaving like a region mm -hmm. and that the University of Notre Dame and even our other eight local colleges and universities were participating together in this plan and everybody had a role and everybody understood and everybody had come to consensus on what this plan looked like. Um, we, we have raised a million dollars a year of local investment uh, the University of Notre wow. Dame, the Judd Layton Foundation, we, the Community Foundation of Elkhart County, uh, the Garitoni Family Foundation, um, First Source Bank are some of the lead investors, but there would be another two or three dozen uh, organizations that contribute to the advancement of the plan and the existence of the partnership so that we can pursue things like the Regional Cities Grant and the Lilly Endowment Grant, and now we've submitted an application for the State's Ready Grant program. Uh, if we are awarded that grant in December of this year, uh, we applied for $50 million, which is the maximum a region could apply for, and we're hopeful that the answer is yes. And that'll be, again, another set of quality of place initiative investments, but also some programmatic investments. So the partnership has a commitment to advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and opportunity for folks that are black, brown, and female. Um, there's an industry growth aspect to it. So just recently, Elkhart County announced that there is a Amazon fulfillment center, yeah, distribution center that. that'll be built right along the, the toll road here. It's a million square foot facility. Whew. So it is the <laughs> largest uh, Amazon fulfillment center that they ha they have different scales. Yeah, this will be the uh, the largest of their distribution centers. Really, uh, wow. approximately a thousand uh, new jobs uh, to staff that fulfillment center, and to some extent, some new economy type uh, jobs that will be in complement to Elkhart's existing manufacturing base as well. Um, but the region wins as a whole because mm -hmm. some of those folks will live in other shop, parts of the region, uh, shop, yeah. they'll tailgate on Saturdays uh, at the University of Notre Dame, they'll go to Warren Dunes, they'll go down to uh, Newton Park for their kids' baseball games and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and really the South Bend Elkhart region as a whole, but we talk South Bend on here pretty much every episode with whoever's on. Um, so for you for spit uh, specifically over the last decade the resurgence of Elkhart just keeps growing and growing becoming more and more relevant has that been pretty cool to see given your position yeah absolutely um, you know I I spend my I spend my days advancing uh, and thinking about and advocating for Elkhart County I mean that's my day job um, but I I'm a I'm a citizen of the region, and you know, if, if at Christmas time you go to the UP Mall, you're going to find a bunch of Elkhart license plates parked in the parking lot. And if mm -hmm. you go to tailgate at Notre Dame, you're going to see a bunch of. I, yep. I I've come to learn this. I don't know how to do it, but 
you can look at a license plate in Indiana and tell which county it's so you registered can, in. So because there's some number or something my, on my the parents plate. are from Kansas. So Kansas, they make it real easy. They have two letters, which are basically like how Indiana would be IN, Kansas would be KS. That's how they do their counties. Okay, there are ways here. The locals always tell me I'm not completely sure how to do it, but you are correct. There is a way to tell what county it is. Yep. So you know, in, in some of these, you go to Wellfield Botanic Gardens in Elkhart. There will be license plates from St. Joseph County that are found there. Yep. And you go to the Lerner Theater on a particular weekend. downtown, uh, yeah. Uh, so the more we behave like a region and identify that there are all kinds of amenities. Um, one of my favorite experiences in the summer is to go over to the <clears throat> Doss Essen House restaurant in yep. Middlebury where they have a Thursday drive cruise-in, if you will, and there will be hundreds of classic vehicles there. You can get some chicken and mashed potatoes and green beans. And oh. then you can go look at a bunch of classic vehicles from 1964 Fastback Mustangs to Studebakers to Duesenbergs and all the rest of it. That's cool, mm -hmm. right? And Goshen has First Fridays and they do a, a Porsche drive-in drive in, in October and it's an Oktoberfest kind of thing and German automobiles so Volkswagens and Porsches and all the rest it I wish more people that lived in this region had a, a broader understanding of all of the amenities and and I would say during my some most of my early days at Bethel I was uh, a pretty provincial like my home in Granger and my work at Bethel and yeah. maybe a little bit of Notre Dame football and that was about as far as I explored. Mm -hmm. And now that I work in Elkhart County, Elkhart County is its own really interesting, cool place um, that has uh, a reputation, of course, as this RV capital of the world, right? And certainly that is our dominant economic like manufacturing engine. Capital dominant world, economic yeah. engine. Um, I will tell you, I, I will not tell you the name, but I will tell you the story. So one of our larger RV companies in Elkhart County, um, I had breakfast with one of their executives six months ago, and he reported to me that the 50 highest paid employees at that particular employer all would make more than a million dollars this year. Wow. That's one employer. Yeah, that's unreal. That's one employer where there are 50 people who are employed by that one company that will make more than a million dollars in a 12 month stretch of time. It is a good place to work. <laughs> like, like some folks will disparage the RV and like trailer trade. Like the RV industry is a, is a, is a really good industry. Yes, right. Um, and they are multifaceted. Like even these RV companies, they're not like, Largely, it's RVs and RV parts, but the businesses they have under them and the things that they manufacture for, it's almost endless. Well, and it's mobility. So, you know, you got pontoon boat companies, you got shuttle bus companies, and they're all in this kind of re related mobility industry mm -hmm. that would even include like AM General yep. here in St. Joseph County. Uh, that's kind of our play. You know, you got the, the turbo laboratory mm -hmm. at Notre Dame that mm -hmm. is an aeronautics yep. player in the space. Um, you've got, of course, the RV industry. But, you know, how many people work for Lippert Components? Yeah. Uh, 13,000, 14,000, I think. How many people work for Patrick Industries? How many Pretty people work for Forest River? How many people work for Thor? I mean, 
there are a lot of really good jobs. I, I have a son that took five years to get out of high school. Um, and I couldn't be prouder of a 1.7 GPA. Yeah. <laughs> a week or two after graduating from high school, he went and got a job making 20 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll make $50,000 this year as a 19, 20-year-old yep. kid, right? With no experience working in a manufacturing environment. Now, it just so happens that he works for a quarter-gated box factory, Welch Packaging, yep. that is outside of the RV industry. You know, Elkhart's got Nibco, and it's got Chemcrest, and it's got, you know, a number of non-RV-related industries that are global players as well. Um Elkhart is a, it, it it is kind of a that's that it is it, it is certainly experiencing a renaissance yeah. of its own, uh, and it's been a lot of fun to watch that happen and and to play a small part in that at the foundation. That stat with top fifty making a million dollars is mind blowing. Yeah, there was a day, a generation ago, in which uh, pe- people will talk about this. I can't prove it or validate it, but I would believe it that there were more millionaires per capita in Elkhart County than anywhere else in the country. Wow. Now I would, I would have, like I would kind of believe that, but if I think about places like wall street yeah. and Silicon, Silicon Valley, Valley. Uh, yeah. I doubt that would be true anymore, but it could very well have been true. Yeah. A generation ago. For sure. I want to wrap up with a few rapid fire questions. All right. These are a little off topic. Um, couple things left on your bucket list professionally personally can be a vacation anything uh you know my wife and i are empty nested now our kids are all grown and gone at some level or the other uh so we are beginning to practice what it means to be snowbirds yeah so last year we spent a few weeks in sarasota in the month of february this year we'll spend the whole month of february it would not surprise me if we start looking for a condo i'm going to learn how to make the allegiant flight back and forth yeah that that I'm telling you, that Gulf side of Florida, if you're if you're from yeah, you know, this for, area, it it's it's pretty solid. Wendy Wendy can relocate for six or eight weeks during the deep winter, mm-hmm. and I can get on the Sunday night flight and come back on Thursday and be in the office Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and yep. then be back with her and avoid some of the. Uh, <laughs> I remember I grew up in Southern California, <laughs> so winter is not at the top of my list. Um, so that that's one thing we're doing. I, I, I think there's a better than even chance that I do retire from the community foundation. You know, I, I, there's so many interesting things that we're either involved with or working on, um, both in Elkhart County and in the region, that. Uh, I, I find great joy in my in my assignment, mm-hmm. and um, there, there's no question that the Community Foundation of Elkhart County, which has about four hundred thirty four hundred forty million dollars on our balance sheet today, will be a billion dollar foundation someday, and have even more influence and have a chance to to influence the landscape of Elkhart County to an even greater extent. And I kind of want to be around to see. Yeah. what that fingerprint looks like another decade from now. So I don't have a next plan. My, my plan is to be faithful to my assignment in its current form. Love it. How do you order your steak? Uh, medium well. Okay. Um, have you ever heard of medium plus? Do you know if that's a thing? I had, That's a new okay. word for Some me. Some people tell me order medium plus, but I've always been medium too Medium plus. It would be in between medium and medium rare. Okay. So, yeah. All right. 
Um, uh, can a guy use a gift card on a first date? No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. No. Okay. <laughs> Unless he's been friend with friends with the gal for a long for a time. long time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, have you ever been stuck on an elevator? Uh, yes. Was it okay? I mean, you're here now. But I'm here now. Yeah. It, you're not claustrophobic at all? Was yeah. All right. Okay. No. Um, I've always kind of wanted to have to climb out the top of the roof of an elevator. If and... I ever get stuck, I might. Yeah. yeah. Uh, might Jason Bourne it, try and get out of there. Yeah. All right. Let's let's end with uh, this question. We'll do, who do you think wins in a fight? A Navy SEAL with a toddler's brain or a toddler with a Navy SEAL's brain? We have got answers on both. We have gotten very passionate answers. On I, both would, sides. I would say the Navy SEAL with the toddler's brain. Okay. Because toddlers throw tantrums, toddlers hit, toddlers bite. And they'd have just to have the mass. So, yeah. To have the mass. But if you were a toddler with a SEAL's brain, you could only affect so much damage on yeah. a full grown, yeah. full grown Navy SEAL body. Okay. Um, is there anything you want to plug? Websites, gift giving, anything coming up? Floor is yours to plug anything. Ah, it, we're nearing the end of the year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, lots of people think about gift giving and they think about the end of their tax year and they think about this is a good time of year to challenge and encourage people to think about generosity. Um, there are all kinds of causes that are worthy of people's generosity that make a difference in the lives of other people that uh, have less uh, or that make uh, life in a particular community better. Um, and I would encourage and plug folks to be as generous as they could possibly be, um, not exclusively because it benefits other people and the cause, but I also believe that being generous is good for your own soul. Uh, and there's a fair amount of evidence that that's true. Yep. Love it. Dr. Pete, thank you so much for coming. Um, I also want to thank our sponsor, Martin Supermarket, Shop Martins, Shop Martins, Shop Martins. And thank you so much for taking the time today. It was awesome. Uh, I think people are really going to like this one. And uh, make sure all the listeners out there check out the Elkhart area, obviously the South Bend area. Um, and I, you mentioned it with Lerner Theater, but I think downtown Elkhart's kind of a hidden gem to you can have a lot of fun in downtown Elkhart. You're right <laughs> on the water and stuff, it's, it's a good time. So thanks for coming by. Yeah, really know, appreciate it. First it might seem like a lot, but they all play and they roll. Put that on anything that I got, and all I care about is my city, man. I can't say it enough. I done heard things about y'all that they can't say about us. I just hold it down for my side. I just hold it down for my set. I give everybody a piece of this, and I make do. This has been a production of the Alpha Dog Podcast Network. Find more shows at alphadogagency.com slash podcast.